I think the to- the first thing is understanding yourself really well and valuing your cultural diversity in terms of your brand. It's their inability to articulate that as a strength uh, yes. and include it in their brand. Mm-hmm. Um, so my top tip is to actually spend some time figuring that out um, because that on a cover letter, that on an opening summary on LinkedIn, that in the first question in an interview, why have you applied for this role? What interests you in this role? Is exactly, you need to come out every single time. Hi, I'm Renata Bernardi, and this is the Job Hunting Podcast, where I interview experts and professionals and discuss issues that are important for job hunters and those who are working to advance their careers. So make sure that you subscribe and follow, and let's dive right in. Hello, everyone, from a very, very cold Melbourne Friday afternoon. A few days ago, I interviewed my friend Div Balai, and I have been procrastinating in organizing this introduction to our conversation because Div and I, well, I am such a big fan of Div, and I've really, really always wanted her to be on this podcast from day one. And I am so excited about the conversation that we've had. And I actually don't know how to introduce her properly because it is an emotional introduction from my side. We have been talking about having our own businesses for a long time. We have been talking about the challenges that we have faced as migrants in Australia for a long time. We have been talking about how much we want to support our clients, in her case, businesses that employ professionals from a diverse background and that want to employ even more of them and want to service clients from diverse backgrounds and want to support international students and so on. And in my case, I want to support people going through recruitment and selection and give them a voice and make sure that they understand how important it is to have career literacy, to have a career plan and to invest in their careers. So she did that way before I did. But as soon as I decided it was my time, Div and her husband Vic Pillai were the first to embrace me and bring me on board. So I am part of the Mind Tribes team as head of market strategy and I support some of their projects that way. And that has been such a warm welcome into this young sort of business community that's forming here in Melbourne, Australia. But also because I know how much value she can add to my community of job hunters by discussing the incredible challenges and difficulties that people from a culturally and linguistically diverse background face when they are job hunting, when they're planning for their careers, when they lack the confidence and the ability to 
convey their messages and improve their brands and their narrative to present themselves really well professionally and understand the value that they bring to the organizations and convey that value well. I'm always doing that every single day. I would say 50% of my clients are Anglo-Saxon clients and the other 50% are cowed clients, clients from a culturally and linguistically diverse background based here in Australia or overseas. I have clients everywhere. And as somebody who has experienced it myself, I can certainly help them develop the skills needed to present themselves well in the job market. So I'm very passionate to bring her on board. Who is this interview with Div for? This interview is for anybody out there who is a leader of people, who is an HR professional, who is interested in diversity and inclusion in the workplace, who is from a cult background, as Div and I are, who have experienced affirmative action, either positively or negatively. So if you are an Anglo-Saxon person and you want to understand how that will impact your ability to job hunt and go through recruitment and selection, you should also listen to this podcast because we will be talking about it as well. And what are her credentials? Oh my goodness, I could go on and on. And for that, I will <laughs> refer you to the episode show notes. Div Pillai is a state Telstra Business Women's Awards judge in Australia. That is a very important awards program. And she has been asked to be a judge in 2020. She's part of the 100 Women of Influence here in Australia that she got nominated in 2018. She's a Westpac Bank 200 Business of Tomorrow Our Day. She's also the National Chair of Diversity and Inclusion for the American Chamber of Commerce in Australia. She's on the board of Street, which is a, a not-for-profit focused on youth homelessness. And she runs Mind Tribes and Culturally Diverse Workforce. So Mind Tribes is her corporate consulting firm and CGW is her social enterprise that she runs with Michelle Redfern, who I have already interviewed for this podcast. So I will link that interview with Michelle Redfern below in the episode show notes as well. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation. It went on for almost an hour and I have timestamps in the episode show notes if you want to skip ahead to find the right topics for you. But if you have time to go for a walk or cook something or just listen to it while you're doing something else, I would strongly recommend that this is a podcast for our times. And I hope that you enjoy this conversation with my sister and great friend, Diff Belay. Bye for now. So Div. Thank you so much. First of all, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I know you're super busy and thank you for doing it on video as well, which, you know, many people opt out and I think some people like to see you when they're listening. So if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, please know that this is also available in video. You can access it on the blog or on YouTube people. So you have that option if you want to see Div and I talking. <laughs> Why don't you start by telling us about your career journey? I think it's a good place to start on a job hunting podcast to know how the guest 
got to where they are <laughs> and how they became the founder of two organizations like you have, Div. So the question is about my first start in, in my working life. Well, now there's a story, Renata. <laughs> my first job was, as we used to be known in those days, a training and personnel officer. So it was an affirmative action position. So I was the first person of color to be employed in these. It was a, it was a drug and rehabilitation center, and they were starting up training and development into workplaces because it was really a, a problem in the workplace where employees you know would come to work intoxicated and they would they, they were upping the occupational injuries on site to the point where South African workplaces had occupational health and safety nurses on site. So here I was newly graduated Bachelor of Social Science and I had done I think about 70 paper applications and I had I thought it was really snazzy back then in the ni- late 1990s I had typed it out on an electric typewriter oh, so man. it was really groovy <laughs> shows our age doesn't it I know I did typewriter. a typewriting course let me tell you this is how old I am paid <laughs> by my grandmother <laughs> yes my mom my mom paid for me and she bought me an electric typewriter which was Amazing because the previous one we had was one of those old ones where you know you had the manual ding, <laughs> and uh, somebody gave me the advice. I went to every possible workshop and seminar then to understand how to put a resume together. So someone said at some workshop, those were the days before internet, dude. I know, yeah, and you know, handwritten and all that sort of notes and things and. Somebody said, some career advisor said it was good to actually have your resume printed on colored paper. I remember that. I was going to say if that was also trendy in South Africa. So it was trendy. definitely trendy in Brazil. It was the bomb to do this. And I went and spent some, some money that I had on this beautiful kind of egg cream color you know, eggshell cream colored paper, which I thought was very corporate. And I did my resume on those because I wanted it to stand out in the fat pile. That's what this person said. So I tried everything and I was quite entrepreneurial then because I then, somebody else said, the good thing to do was to call up companies and let them know that you're interested and try and talk to the HR person. So I did all of that good work and I, I announced that I would be dropping by with my resume. And so I did. So every couple of days, I would go and print it out. I I used, I think, a couple of neighbors' printers, printed it out, and I would shot off all nicely dressed and rock up to reception, announce myself. And I was very crafty back then too. And I said, oh, I've just spoken to your graduate recruiter. And they asked me to drop off my resume. And here it is. (laughs) So I was really cheeky back then too. And so I did that proactively. And this particular role was advertised in the paper one Saturday morning. So I had done all of this and had no, no callbacks, nothing. So I saw this ad. And it actually required, you know, just a bachelor degree. A lot of the time, you know, the ads then wanted either, you know, engineers or accountants or finance people. And this one just said you had to have a bachelor's. I'm like, this is me. I can, I can apply for that. 
And I had, or I was already director of youth services with Rotary. So I had a social impact. Uh, I worked with youth services. Then I had n- a number of volunteer roles under my belt as a student. So I just armed myself with all of that experience because I thought this is the place that will value it. And uh, I did the same technique. So I applied formally, but I decided not to just drop it off randomly. In they had a letterbox at the out, you know, for all the respondents. But I decided to walk past the letterbox and go to the reception, chatted up the receptionist, and I asked, you know, are they recruiting for affirmative action roles? And she said, I don't know. I will check in. And I said, I think it's the time that we should be starting to look at affirmative action roles. And she said, I'll ask, I'll ask the person hiring. I don't know. Um, and they actually, it actually wasn't. So the role advertised wasn't for an affirmative action role. But because I asked the question, they thought, oh, this person doesn't seem too shabby. She speaks English quite well. She'll do as a black empowerment candidate. So I kind of nudged my way into that first role. <laughs> it was just taking initiative, I think. So I, when I reflect back, I think it was just me pushing, pushing all the boundaries I possibly could. Yeah, so that was my first training and personnel officer. And now moving forward many, many years, here you are helping leaders understand affirmative action, diversity yes. and inclusion, how to incorporate that into business. But the business case, the positive impact that it makes mm. in operations, in PL, in business results, right? Yeah. So you can actually, with your business, prove to leaders that it is a good business decision to incorporate diversity and inclusion as part of their strategy. How do you do that, Div? Well, we use business metrics that our clients actually use for their, to measure their own performance of their companies. And we show the link, particularly of cultural inclusion and diversity and how that benefits sales and service and retention and all of those metrics. So we don't actually look only at people metrics. So we don't look at just engagement and, you know, motivation and improvement on the talent pipeline but we actually look at it in hard business metrics. So for example, if you were to include a customer who's multicultural, what does that do for your revenue and and service lines? Or if you actually engage your non-CELD or non-culturally diverse staff to be culturally competent, what does that do? So culturally inclusive and competent, what does that do for your bottom line? So it's, it, it isn't rocket science. It's just good correlation data that we've been able to showcase. But it, it does take time. So it, it's not a quick fix. It's a 12-month it's a or more very deliberate suite of activities that we push and nudge against. Um, so it's not just a quick, quick fix. So for those that are not very familiar with diversity and inclusion strategies, explain to us what CALD actually means as an acronym and explain also, if you can, how HR strategies are in operation, especially in large organizations, when you are looking at the makeup of your workforce Mm. and looking at workforce of the future and looking at creating opportunities and enabling better improvement in performance for the workforce. How are they working and how are they segmenting also the workforce and Mm. treating those differently? Yeah, so to answer the first question, CALD stands for culturally and linguistically diverse individuals. And it really is 
very interchangeable with migrant. So you'll generally find your migrant population in Australia is culturally and linguistically diverse. So they come from other home countries around the globe and they likely speak two or more languages and including English. So, you know, our country is pretty much made up of about, you know, 60% multicultural people anyway. And the census data shows that that is just growing with the number of births as well that you have into our migrant population. Our international student cohorts are generally about 50% or more in our universities. So that just tells us the richness of cultural diversity that we have in this country. In terms of HR strategies that very much around in Australian companies, so corporate and government, you'll find that diversity and inclusion really either sits as a portfolio or special kind of category of HR business practice that sits alongside the other practices. So you've got your recruitment and onboarding or sourcing and, and recruitment. You've got your you know, onboarding and learning and development. You've got your remuneration and then you've got your employment relations, employment law, you know, overall experience and well-being and all of those other um, pieces. And you know, somewhere there is under learning and development is a talent management function that looks at talent pipelining Um, and sometimes the diversity and inclusion portfolio of work sits underneath the talent management pipelining and my opinion you know I pretty much always speak my mind Renata so my um, opinion is that this kind of siloed mentality of seeing diversity and inclusion somewhere as a special project or uh, in addition to a portfolio of work. So it, it, it by and large doesn't get a large amount of investment from the business because it's always either a shared function or in some businesses I've seen it actually sit in the events team. So in the events team for employees, so under employee experience. And that just says a lot about how integrated diversity and inclusion is in a people function in a business. And this is why we've seen, and in my mind, we've seen diversity and inclusion very much sort of celebrated in terms of a calendar of events. And many people are familiar with International Women's Day and Harmony Week and all sorts of you know, celebration, LGBTIQ yeah. um, events and things like that, Pride Week. So it, it tends to be a celebration of diversity represented or demographically represented. Doesn't tend to be good um, integrated talent pipelining from an inclusion perspective. So just your audience really needs to get the distinction between diversity and inclusion. And what we need right now is the inclusion Inclusion. part of it um, Mm -hmm. and the valuing. I mean, you'll really only get the business benefit that we spoke about earlier when diverse talent is included. So it's just, it's like, you know, pencils in a pencil box. You know, you've Mm -hmm. got all the colors in there, but you can't draw a pretty picture if you don't use all of them. Yeah. just sits like a static um, piece of paper with a very boring drawing. So, you know, I'm really quite vocal about that, about the inclusion part of it. And there just isn't enough good um, practitioner capability around that inclusion aspect. Because it's the inclusion aspect that will give the business results. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Not, yes. Nothing, not just having, you know, people represented. And, and diversity is very much a fact. If you look at most organizations in Australia, most of them have many people coming from Celt backgrounds and migrant backgrounds and starting to see emergence of Indigenous leaders coming through at grad level. And it's starting. I mean, there's, there's definitely, rep, it's represented, but our big question is where is it represented? It's typically represented in the lower entry roles and in the middle of the pack. So by and large, migrant or Celt professionals sit mid to senior. Yes. And there's a very tiny proportion that sits senior to executive or on track. And the data shows that if we see them there, they have sat there far too long. So their trajectory, so they've kind of plateaued. So they've reached mid to senior. So if you just look at, you know, many migrant professionals life cycle in Australia, you've got the entry, the first five years of settling a career, the five to 10 of push, you know, up and specialization, maybe a couple of career changes in between to get a little bit higher in their pay, a little bit more advanced in their leadership journey. And then they sit there and they sit there likely around five to eight years longer than uh, a person born here. Right. And what happens in there... Why do you think that is? That's where all the bias sets in, Mm. in terms of talent identification, who is on the talent pipeline, who isn't. And in there sits a hell of a lot of bias about who should advance and who shouldn't. And, you know, I experienced this in my career, in my last corporate career. I reached that point. Um, so that's very much my story. Reached that point. And, you know, for about at least three or four years, I was a top performer. Couldn't fault my performance appraisals. Always ranked number one. Was the most highly educated person there in, in HR but was always told year on year for about four years that I needed uh, to increase my profile, that I potentially needed to move to Sydney where the head office was, that I needed maybe to get another, you know, lateral move or secondment to understand more of the business because this was my first, um, you know, telco role. Maybe I needed a little bit more uh, diversity in my telco experience. So it was kind of this little shuffle. Yeah, shuffle here, shuffle there. And, and, you know, one year, two years, three years, four years. I had seconded for my HR director on, on numerous occasions and did a very good job um, and was recognized for that. But then when it actually came to just shifting the needle and pushing forward, it just tended to plateau a little bit. And, you know, whether that's, you know, some people would label that as unconscious bias. Some people would label it many different things. But for me, the end result was I wasn't advancing in pay or leadership. That's a fact. Yeah. Uh, and that's many people's stories, really. It is. It's, it's many of our listeners' stories. I'm pretty sure, even though the stats don't show, but because of the feedback that I get directly through emails and, and messages, that the listeners of this podcast are at that point or more senior. You know, I have very a few listeners that are under 30. So most of them are 30 plus and they are either currently looking for work unemployed, but most of them are employed and just 
very dissatisfied with yeah. you know what's going on in their employment they may have been overlooked for many years they may have been stuck some of them blame themselves uh for being stuck men and women mostly yeah. women tend to blame themselves you know i had kids i left and i came back and i couldn't get my footing anymore and so they don't understand that the organizational structures and the structures in civil society at large really enable them to feel like oh, that yeah. it's not their yeah. fault <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's, there's definitely structural, entrenched structural bias. Yes. And that is at an organization level structure, but also in a leader mindset yeah. as well in terms of who is suitable or talented enough yes. to advance. And then once I start looking at the feedback that I get, especially from clients and people that are talking to me weekly, is that I have the called clients and followers that feel like they're always being overlooked for roles mm. and opportunities. And the non-called or the Anglo-Saxon people that are thinking that they're always being overlooked because there needs to be affirmative action within the organizations or in the recruitment and selection process for the cowed and the women and, you know, people from diversity yeah. background to come. So especially men that are in their 40s and 50s are feeling really scared to be out of work at, mm. during COVID. How do you navigate this? Do you get that as well as feedback to you? Do you get those questions? And how, what, what is your answer? Yeah, so it's a very interesting question because I think when you start to segment talented people into who needs to advance first versus who needs to play a waiting game, it always tends to be quite divisive. You probably, uh, you know, whoever you talk to on a given day will probably likely feel excluded from the conversation. The advice I'd give to both men and women, cowed and non-cowed people, is to understand your reality. And that's the thinking that I employed in South Africa because prior affirmative action, people told me, oh, you don't have a chance. You don't have a chance in this white-dominated society especially with a degree like yours. And I see the our government today making an underplay for the arts. <laughs> and what was your degree, Div? I don't know. I, I did a Bachelor of Social Science oh, and okay. an honours degree in organisational psychology yeah. and then a Master's in... Master's. Yes. At that time, I was told you likely won't get a role because it's a white government. Stacked against, odds are stacked against you. And so in my preparation for that reality, so accepting of the reality was for me like a problem to solve and a way to navigate around it. Mm -hmm. So I went, all right, okay, if it's stacked against me and that's what I have to deal with as a reality, then I will go about other avenues to gain work experience and to find a place that actually I can start and commence because I was really convinced that this wouldn't be the reality forever. And I thought, okay, what do I do right now in this reality? And how do I accept this reality and work around it and still get to a good enough outcome where I could meet my financial needs, but also meet my career need? And that's the decision that I took at that point. And then affirmative action came about in my last year of graduating and mm. it changed my reality and it got me a step in and, and from there I kept going. And the advice I give to people in Australia who, who likely are in a similar boat where you know, now there's you know, potentially more focus on gender 
than ever before in Australia. And I'm not sure whether your audience will see a report that's come out by Wijia this today that's come out, which uh, actually shows a 5% market value increase for companies that employ women at a senior level so senior management uh, executive and the top job of ceo i saw that on the age this morning yes is that the report i'm That's going to report. link the report on the episode show notes that'll be lovely yeah. yeah so um and my commentary on linkedin today was that you know because it was really contextualized in this covid context saying you know if you want to bank on productivity and improve business recovery post covid you should bank on a woman as in in senior leadership and of course my commentary on linkedin was i hope that's the case for all women not just for a woman of a certain demographic profile or educational status i hope it's all women with an intersectional lens across age diverse experiences international experiences cultural diversities ethnicities all sorts of women because it's that intersectional lens that will get that diversity up in terms of productivity gain and business performance gain so i made that commentary but that back to your question about the advice is that if you're finding that you're applying for a role in an organization that actually has pretty much on their websites and in their public statements made a play for gender balance and let's say you're a man you've got to understand where is your best marketability positioning so if you're going to go in there go in there with your eyes open in terms of what is accessible in your uh, personal job market and i'm very particular about people when i'm coaching them is to say yep there's the market the broad market there's that internal job market in an organization and then it's your personal market you've got to layer that and figure out what is the sphere of influence in your personal market how are you understanding that reality and how are you navigating it because it's that internal agency of navigating what's happening right now and moving past it or around it that will get you moving forward but if you're going to throw your hands up in the air and say oh gosh I'm a cold person there's only white women being employed oh go oh, gosh I'm a, I'm, I'm a white man middle aged look at all these women getting employed well that's you pretty much calling on the gods to help you which is likely not going to happen i think the best position is to understand the realities create your own personal job market context and then navigate through that playing on your strengths of course going market it's a market proposition right it's you selling yourself as a service and product to the market and how do you best do that and that's what people need to figure out to be honest and i think most people who figure it out move despite you know the play for women or the play for keld or whatever it is yep but what we know i've just interviewed anita zima this morning from slade group and you know talking to her and of course what we see in figures that we get and statistics and what she sees in her job is we're still employing non-cult people. Yeah. So <laughs> that's true. the reality. Uh, yep. We want to have that diversity in the recruitment, but when it comes to the selection, it's still not happening as much as we want to see it. You mm. call on that all the time on your social media platforms. 
What would you advise cold women and men going through recruitment and selection? How would you position them for success? What would the best tips be? I mean, you, you teach that as part of your culturally diverse women in workforce programs. Yeah. Can you give us the top tips that you would give them? Yep. I think the, to- the first thing is understanding yourself really well and valuing your cultural diversity in terms of your brand. I think the biggest lesson that I've learned from seeing, you know, almost 180 plus women come through our um, culturally diverse women's masterclass is the consistent undervaluing of cultural diversity as a strength and building it into a brand and being able to articulate that through a recruitment and interviewing process. I think there's somehow an unconscious voice that's, you know, saying to people from diverse backgrounds, fit in, fit in, fit in. This is how it's done in Australia. This is how you front up for an interview. This is what you say. And somewhere in there, there's a loss of that individuality and that voice and that unique brand and the confidence to back yourself. And that's what's missing is in my read from coaching so many women, you know, for so many years coming from a culturally diverse background, it's their inability to articulate that as a strength uh, and include it in their brand. It's the overemphasis of fitting in and integrating and sounding more like and it's just not on and we lose the diversity in there, but it needs to be cleverly crafted. And I do think that um, there's a little bit of fitting in, I suppose, but it's not without losing your sense of self. Mm-hmm. Um, so my top tip is to actually spend some time figuring that out because that on a cover letter, that on an opening summary on LinkedIn, that in the first question in an interview why have you applied for this role? What interests you in this role? Is exactly, you need to come out every single time. I'm going to tell you something and I have to be very careful because she's a client and I you know, have to keep her anonymity, but she's interviewing for roles on Zoom and I've been working with her for many weeks now, more than a month. And we got to a stage where she's so comfortable with her cowed status that her background is cowed. She added a couple of things on the background that identifies where she's from. And she's really proud of that, you know? So some items of decoration and things. And she said, look, you know, this is from my mother and this I inherited from my grandmother and it's all there. And I think that she wants to position herself that way, you know, super duper, very professional woman, lots of great roles that she's done. Plus, she now knows that that's a strength for her. Absolutely. And I am so excited for her. But I think, you know, it needs to be used very cleverly. So you need to know how to link it into a value proposition to the role. So you can't just kind of dangle your cultural diversity and, you know, as a pro, unless you can really link it to a values-based outcome for the business. So understanding the products, customer base, the service design process, the untapped market in the multicultural market and positioning yourself as a person of color who understands the lived experience of a migrant 
can I think you know, understand the narrative, the decision making process, yeah. the language. So many people fail to put languages on resumes these days. I think yeah. at some point a few years ago, somebody must have told people not to put languages. Yeah, yeah. Do you think so? And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember. I know you speak all these languages. Are they, where are they? Oh, they don't really mean much in my sector. And I'm like, let's look at companies that have subsidiaries in those countries. And yeah. let's see if there is a connection that we can make. Yeah, absolutely. That's really sound advice to connect what you have with that company, with their brand, with their product, or also their lack thereof. Mm. So, you know, I positioned myself for board roles where I felt that there was a lack of diversity and that they needed me in there as a diverse voice. And I've got those roles on the basis of my diversity, but I didn't just push it in. I really cleverly crafted a rationale of why it's of value or benefit to have me in there. So I think that crafting takes a lot of work and that's where you're brilliant at coaching and, and developing people to do that because it really is a confronting process. I mean, what I've learned from the women on our masterclass, it's terribly confronting and, and I went through that myself, but it took probably likely far too long <laughs> for me to discover that properly. So I think, you know, accelerating that to, with, with the help of a coach and really delving into it and clarifying it and getting someone to ask you the hard questions before you have to front up and get those hard questions from someone you don't know is actually quite beneficial. But I think, I don't know what you find with your audience, but there's also a lack of investment of care of people in themselves. They well, were, I was yeah. about to say, if anything, in terms of what you said before, you said something, and I'm going to paraphrase, there needs to be a little bit of an adaptability. Yeah. The positive thing about adapting to being in an environment like Australia is to be a little bit more laid back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and be kind to yourself and more resilient when you don't get the opportunity and just mm -hmm. bounce back and move on. Like so many others in the job market do probably better than migrants and, and cowed people mm -hmm. because they, there's so much on the line for them. They want to succeed so badly. And there's a lack of status quo, sometimes a lack of, lack of network and connections that really makes it more frustrating for them. Yeah. And possibly they overthink it more than others do. You know, Absolutely. they overthink the gaps in their careers, you know, the, the times that they weren't working. There's a lot yeah. of overthinking of that. Yeah. If you're a migrant, that others don't really care that much. You don't really yeah. need to worry too much about that. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I think migrants just have a, a very, um, I think, far too evidence-based approach on proving their competence. Mm. You know, they, they really want to know that they nail every single thing, that they're a you know, expert at when actually that's just maybe too much for the role. You know, mm -hmm. it's just uh, there's no expectation that you're an expert on 10 things. There's an expectation that you're an expert on two of the main things and that's where you sell yourself. So I think, I think we, if, especially people coming from developing countries who have really taken a hard road to educate themselves, maybe are the first in their families to get educated, It, there's so much on the line to showcase competence 
that we're hardwired to actually prove it all the time. And it's even in those micro moments of networking as well, you know, in a networking context. And I often will hear people, you know, the quick tell me about yourself, they tend to overtell people about themselves. Like, well, this qualification and that qualification. And I'm, you know, I've got experience in that. And and people go, oh, really? That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it's just just a sense of self, you know. It's, It's hard. It's hard. Part of your, most of your work and your time is telling leaders how to support people from diversity, a diverse background, how to support, how to recruit, how to manage and help them grow and stay in the business, right? What advice do you give leaders that are listening to better support diversity and inclusion in the workplace? Yep. I leaders and colleagues, by the way, let's uh, do both. Okay. The the main thing is like any business problem, I often say to them, do you understand your data? Do you understand your people? You know, especially if they're looking at, you know, some of the people I speak to, I mean most of the people I speak to are are Anglo people, Australian born, and cultural diversity and inclusion is a new concept uh, because of this, they've just got the hang of gender inclusion. And the, the thing that I say to them is actually know your market. So know your internal employee market and then know your customer market really well from a data perspective. Because once you understand that, the business keys for where the gaps are and how to close them becomes a clear cut decision and once I've got that decision from them then I can actually show them how and it is about creating a win-win for these organizations especially at a leadership level I mean the the easiest way to turn the tide is to look at senior appointments because likely appointing a culturally diverse person into a head of products or services starts the ball rolling in diverse thinking they will ask the questions naturally of that market segment for example, and you've got both your employees and your customers looked after. So really looking at it very strategically about where those first appointments in the senior executive team needs to be made is really, really important decisioning. And that advisory that we provide is really key. And so from, but from a data-centric point of view, and almost every client that we've worked with, large corporate and government, absolutely don't have a handle on culturally diverse data. They're almost scared to collect it. They don't know how. They've never asked it before. So from a recruitment perspective, they just haven't collected that. So they don't know. Um, it goes back to that, that first question that I asked you. Because, you know, I haven't been in the sector for a long, long time. I think the last time that I worked very closely with HR was when I was head of governance at Monash. And I had to kind of know. And it, diversity was a big elephant in the room. Nobody would actually mention anything, you know. <laughs> and I was wondering if things had evolved to a point where we now have to segment our workforce and we can identify them, put people and sort of stratify them so that we know how many male, female, cow, Anglo-Saxon. Do we do organizations they, do that? I think, yeah, from a, from a male, female perspective, yes. And that's about it. To be honest, male, female, we can understand, but we, you know, there's very few organizations that actually can say, I I think the next piece of data that they can find is languages spoken, but that's if it's recorded. 
at the recruitment process uh, and if people tick a box somewhere they can tell you how many indigenous and non-indigenous people they have because people tick a box again but more than that they just don't know uh, they can what well, we can we can see it clearly from org charts at a senior level where they don't have killed people that's pretty much from a first name and surname categorization and then even from looking at second second tiers so you know places of education your passports things like that that we kind of nudge them with here's how you can find it so from your existing data we can layer when you're doing your audit you can ask for that we can ask different questions to kind of anticipate or predict but you know you've got some names that are pretty innocuous like you can't really i mean someone can have a very anglo-saxon sounding name but Mm. could could be a migrant you know you just don't know but the likelihood of that percentage is quite small when you kind of layer the languages country of birth dual passports primary education international experience as soon as you start to layer those things you realize okay this this workforce is far more diverse than people anticipated but yes, yeah, it's, it's very interesting because every, every organization we've started with, we're doing a large piece of work for the Victorian government, no understanding of culturally diverse data. And they What about to- the US? Now you're chair of the American Chambers Diversity and Inclusion Committee here. I think in America, you can gather more data, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah and I have, a- I have found through my clients that they are very uncomfortable my clients that have worked in HR or still work in HR are very uncomfortable with some of the the head office requests that they can't activate here. Yeah, yeah. Is that right? Absolutely. So the US is far more experienced at collecting that data so that even from a people of color perspective, they can segment very well, you know, into Latin America, into, you know, different parts of you know, migrant, you know, generation on generation, they can catch that data really easily. The UK is also good at it. Canada is good at it. So those countries are far more advanced. Um, Even Germany is quite good at it as well. So we've got a couple of clients who are multinationals and you can see the difference in the accessibility of data, collection and accessibility of data. So Australia is very much lagging in that, that respect. Okay. Mm-hmm. Talking about HR and diversity and inclusion data, what if people want to get into that career of working in diversity and inclusion and helping with the changes that are needed in their organizations? And do you need to get training done or is it learning on the job? What would you recommend for people that want to get into that type of role? I do think that, uh, you know, some HR training or education is, is good. But the, the problem that you find in the market right now is that diversity and inclusion practitioners are either being supported and scaled up in this COVID slash post-COVID world or they are absolutely being scaled down. So I think it is really relevant uh, or, or correlated to the organization culture, the leader at the top about where diversity and inclusion is really positioned, and whether it's just a nice to have or whether it's actually quite integrated into the business's talent strategy to have it there. You know, one of our large clients, you know, the, the head of um, diversity and inclusion has been stood down. So, you know, it's, it's, it's fair and large engineering organization and, 
absolutely needs this role to be driving their inclusion plans, but um, has been stood down so and likely will exit. So I, I, I think for people who are interested in it, you've, like with anything, you have to plan your pathway in very carefully and you've got to go into organizations knowing what the sentiment is about DNI in the first place and then you know work with the competition of people who have been stood down right now who will be moving around into those roles if there are roles available yeah so it's a pretty dire situation I mean I would like to tell you better news but um yeah, and I think um, I think a number of the um, consulting firms have announced this morning that they have laid off a significant number of consultants. So oh, the okay. yeah, I so the that. yeah, so the DNI uh, world is filled with, you know, you've got your top tier consulting firms with large DNI practices, and then you've got entrepreneurs like myself, plus you've got in-house practitioners inside organisations. So. You've got to understand the landscape there. And I reckon the number of people who have been stood down from large consultancies and top tier ones will likely go the entrepreneurial route and consultant, independent consultant route. Mm. So that that's something else to play in the competitiveness of the whole landscape. But yeah, so I, I, I think there's never been a better time with the Black Lives Matters movement and the big push business recovery and diversity and how it plays into that. It's, it's a really good time to be in it. Yes. But I do think that you've got to be well-versed and well-positioned with networks to get in to companies who are on the track to make change in that regard. So I do, I do think, yeah, I do think it's timing and placing. And if, you, if you're entering it without any DNI background, it's going to be tough. Okay, so let's now move into you promoting some of the things you want to promote. So for people that want to know more about culturally diverse women and culturally diverse workforce, and they are based in Australia, are you going to open registrations this year? How is 2020 going to look like for the CDW training? Yeah. So, of course, uh, our masterclasses were face-to-face delivered. Yeah. So we've had to, of course, pause on those. We've got one group in flight at the moment, but we will we will resume and complete that group. But what we've decided to do is actually move our masterclasses in-house. So we are, this was previously a, a public program. And while that's not totally off the cards, our strategy now is to move in-house inside organizations. So we are working with those organizations who see the value of cultural diversity, especially with the, with the gender lens. And we, we think that we'll get more traction in terms of uh, leadership and pay for these women who are specifically selected by their organization's senior executive to go on our masterclass program. We'll have a closer touch point in terms of the change that we'll make for their leadership and pay, and we'll follow them through inside the organization and and watch for that change and hold people accountable to make change for them, uh, which in a public program is really hard to do, whereas in-house we'll do that. So we have a number of organizations who've signed up to support us Um, with those classes so if you're an organizational head and you look up and you look at your top tiers and you don't see any culturally diverse people or you have a gender action plan and it doesn't actually intersect 
with culturally diverse women, then I'd love to hear from you because we will um, include your LinkedIn on yes. and the company page on the episode show notes. Anything yes. else you want to promote? Your well, we, yes, we do. We have the awards. So we actually plan this year to run a culturally diverse workplaces award. So this is for men and for women. And, and this is Australia only if you're it's listening Australia. overseas. Yeah, Australia. Australia. Oh, people. Yes. Oh, well, I wish I, wish I could go international, but not one yet. One day. One, <laughs> one day. day. So national awards, all states in Australia, but the difference with this and the reason behind it is very strategic because it is about getting you know, 250 people into a gala event, recognizing the progress that has been made with culturally diverse people inside organizations, but also looking to garner this community into action to say, if you haven't done enough, what should you be doing? So look to the the organizations, the heads of organizations and culturally diverse people who have made change but look to see what you can do more of. And we want to actually make sure that we engage this community in that strategic discussion. It is an awards, yes, but it's also a community of practice that we're trying to build for organizations that really are tuned in to look at diversity more than just a gender lens. So we've got three categories and it's for organizations that have stepped up where we have a category for advocates and allies, which typically likely will be Anglo men and females who have backed Keld people and then we'll have Keld role models so you know people like you Renata who actually do a lot for Keld people and their advancement in organizations. Listeners you can nominate me. Nominate. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh I might, I might add that it is for professional sub-entrepreneurs so if you were a Monash in your head of governance role you could apply. So this Don't is not, nominate me. Don't nominate Somebody and coaches. <laughs> yes, I will yes. give you a list. I will. I will actually compile a good list of people. Yeah, you on could. the episode show notes. Let's you see. could. So the date to watch for that is March twenty first. So it's the the UN's International Day for Elimination of Race Discrimination, okay. um, which is the twenty first of March next year. And you know, fingers crossed, we actually are in a space to hold a public events a gala event like that if not and we're still battling with this virus then we will have it later in the year but mark my words it will happen (laughs) i know you i know it will (laughs) tenacious i am i am Uh, but thanks for inviting me renata i really appreciate thank um, you for coming on the podcast i this is long overdue i really wanted to have you on board and i'm sure that the listeners will really enjoy this conversation and relate a lot to what we've spoken today so thank you div absolutely pleasure thanks renata bye-bye I hope you found this episode useful and that it helps your job hunting and career plans. Don't forget to subscribe and follow me on social media and on your favorite podcast app. And please join the Reset Your Career community so I can send you free tools and resources to make your career advancement more successful. See you next time.